0: This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law, and I call the Law Review to order. Today, affairs and officials, medical malpractice, and funding for the courts. We welcome to our legal roundtable to discuss current legal topics our guests, Attorney John Fisk, Judge Kenneth Medell, Attorney and Adjunct Professor Wendy Patrick. Our guests are here today speaking as individual educators, not as representatives of their offices. Thanks for joining us on Law Review. Welcome all, and to our listeners, you can check the Podbean website to look at their links to their bios. As we look at the newspaper, the the David Petraeus, John Allen, Paula Broadwell affair would make a great spy novel, except I can't imagine a publisher being willing to call it fiction. Uh, it would seem too unreal for, sick, for fiction. I think we could spend a whole day, in fact, probably all of law school, talking about the legal issues floating around uh, from this case. But Wendy, Wendy Patrick, aside from the moral or ethical issues, um, how about the legal issues? What legal issues do you see coming from the case? Yeah,
1: that's what a lot of people want to talk about. You know, we, we've all gotten so distracted by the drama involved in this, this ever-evolving saga. What are some of the legal issues? Um, well, one of the things that everybody has been worried about and is continually being investigated is whether or not there was any kind of a national security breach. Was there any confidential information that was leaked? That is from foremost on a lot of people's minds. is, you And know, that would
0: be illegal.
1: Well, absolutely. If they're if they're you know disclosing things they're not permitted to, or even if there's there's some sort of a, a level of negligence or recklessness, you know we're we're looking at a, um the officials are looking at a lot of different things. They're going through emails and they're going through computers and they're these looking... guys
0: spend a lot of time emailing.
1: You know well, and that's that's the that was yesterday's news, wasn't it? That what were they talking about in up to thirty thousand pages of email? Now you are a prolific emailer yourself, my friend, but you don't come anywhere near for business
0: purposes, right? And they're... and
1: that and was it business purposes? That's yeah. one of the things they're looking at is what were they talking about? But um, it's it's interesting this issue of adultery. You know, we call it affairs and officials and. Um, we have legislated morality in some sense through a number of different codified rules over the years, and we continue to under the Military Justice Code and under the codes of certain states. Well, and nearly we half saw. the states
0: make uh, adultery a crime.
1: And we, we think to ourselves, gosh, you know, we can often see the rationale for some of the some of the laws that we have, and certainly this is one that um, can end a career and ended this career. And it it really is something that is is still on the books in a lot of states. But more than that, well,
0: what, may I, let me ask is is it the fact that it's a crime that is ending a career, or is it more the moral and ethical?
1: In this particular instance, it's much more than that, given the credentials and the caliber of the players involved. It is one of those things where you talk about a tone at the top. Um, This, you know, and and we've spent a lot of time on CEO misconduct lately, haven't we, in the business ethics community. Now we're actually talking about, you know, moral, ethical, and potential legal misconduct all wrapped up together um, uh, because of who the people are in this particular case and because of what's at stake. I think, more, more than anything else.
0: The, the fact that it's illegal, uh, the adultery is illegal um, in, in a number of states, um, would but very few people are ever convicted of, of that crime. So again, I think it's probably it's an interesting quirk, actually an almost an in, interesting quirk of history, because originally, 50 years ago, all the states would have had laws against adultery, but also laws against fornication, which is unmarried, uh, people having sex. Why have those laws disappeared?
1: Well, um, a lot of those laws, that, and obviously law review professors and, and university professors have written an enormous amount on this, is the the fact that our law has been continually evolving almost due to uh, societal concerns, societal beliefs. And, and it really is a shame that certain things um, you know, are and aren't the way it evolves. It doesn't make everybody happy every year as we get more lenient in some laws and we get more, more strict in others. And there's just a, a number of, of rules that surround um, moral crimes like this, that you can't please everyone. And there's very vocal advocates on both sides of, of the issue. And um, obviously, under military law, it still is a crime. And that's one of the factors that is being discussed in this case is did that affair, did it begin when it would have been a potential crime under military law?
2: Wendy, this is Judge Medell uh, piping in. Uh, I know that in the military, uh, their rules about uh, sexual misconduct are very strict. For example, um, a higher officer cannot have a relationship with a lower officer. It's called fraternization, and that can get you disciplined, much less have an affair. General Petraeus, though, was uh, retired from the military and was now the leader of the CIA. Um, I take it that it's a multifaceted problem then for him in terms of leadership, security, et cetera. What's your, what's your comment it, on that? It
1: certainly is, and one of the things that they're talking about is, you know, when when did this affair start? Obviously, they're asking questions about that, and many of you may have followed the evidentiary hearing that we had last week on Army General Jeffrey Sinclair, who apparently was accused by a number of women that worked for him and with him Of of not just sexual harassment but actual sex crimes and I might point out since we're talking about the law that this is another example of why we have the restrictions we do against lawyers having sex with clients well
0: why would why would the uh, code of military justice apply to General Petraeus unless he still is in the reserves or in some way in the military, I mean, in, it, in, having touched military doesn't doesn't mean that right. goes
2: on. In asking the question, I, I didn't really mean to suggest that he was, although uh, that he is under the military justice system still. Although there is t- discussion about that, yeah, still. Uh, meaning, I did read a newspaper article that did indicate that he might still be subject to discipline from the military, right. even though he's not in it anymore. He, but well, to highlight the distinction between, he may
0: be, he may be in the reserves or was subject to active recall. I I saw something that was subject to active recall. Otherwise, it just would be hard to imagine. There was just
2: some issue I saw raised, and I don't know what the answer is, but I I think the parallel talks about, uh, what I was asking about, essentially, is what's the risk there, being the leader of the CIA and having an affair?
1: Well, I think we've seen what the risk is, unfortunately, yeah. is you you know, you talk about somebody held to a higher standard or somebody that should be held to a higher standard, setting the tone to to follow. And not only that, then there's a the larger issue of the the kind of the sensitive information that you're in charge of that well, you're Well, and handling. the risk of
0: blackmail as a result.
1: Oh, I mean we could go on and on. And yeah. and there's just I mean that's one of the reasons this story is as interesting to the general public as it is. Now it, it's you know convenient that we're done with the presidential election and now everybody's back onto human drama, human interest. But it still is. It's, it's a heartbreaking story on so many levels when you look yeah. at, you know, the, the lives that are ruined through this, this kind of behavior. And one of the other things I think that distinguishes this case from some others is the um, the amount of contact that went on through electronic communication in a day and age where we are all painfully aware how easy it is to obtain that communication. And you
0: know, how, that, how impossible it is to erase it. All. and
1: how exactly and how possible it is to erase it and the more and more you know even with some of the other cases that we followed recently it seems to all come back to many cases are proven through looking at emails yet we continue to use them
0: good point well stay tuned this saga will continue uh, the, the roundtable will come back to it at a later time but it's certainly uh, uh, n- enormously important to the to the country and our security but also uh, very interesting series of legal issues, and those will be developed. Today on Law Review, we are talking with John Fisk, Judge Kenneth Madell, and Wendy Patrick. John, let's t- turn to a topic that I've heard half a dozen times uh, since the election, and that is the question of medical malpractice and. Uh, medical malpractice, particularly in California, but the, the same issues are here as everywhere else. What are the issues that are that the w- the public will likely see about malpractice, medical malpractice, in the weeks ahead?
3: Well, that's a, a great topic and a great uh, question, Dean Smith. And we are uh, very honored here to have Judge Madell on our regular panel. Uh, and in Judge Madell's previous life, he was a medical malpractice attorney, and that was his specialty. So. Uh, Even though I'll be introducing this topic, he's got a lot of uh, knowledge and a wealth of experience in the area. Um, For those unfamiliar with medical malpractice, medical malpractice is sort of a sub-area of the larger area of tort or personal injury. And under personal injury, essentially something has happened to your body or your person, and um, you want to recover for that, and in California, under regular personal injury, you can recover for a category of damages called general damages, and these are damages for things like pain and suffering, emotional distress, um, and then there are special damages. And under special damages, these are things like medical bills and costs, both past and present and future. What we would think of maybe as out of pocket. Sure. Past
0: or future out-of-pocket expenses. That's right. Things you can count on your toes
2: and fingers (laughs) is what I
3: say. That's right. Economic damages, essentially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so um, in personal injury in California, uh, the amount of general damages, pain and suffering, emotional distress, past pain and suffering, future pain and suffering, this amount is unlimited. And this is an amount that a jury or a judge, whoever the trier of fact is in a case, can determine. This would be the typical automobile accident or slip and fall kind of case. Absolutely. If you get into an automobile accident and you break your leg, how much pain does that person go through uh, involved with that break? And under medical malpractice in California, there's a law called MICRA. And uh, our, our friends listening may have heard of that before. And MICRA was a law passed in the late 70s. I think it was 1977. And it, the, the largest um, and most notable piece of the MICRA Act uh, was to limit the amount of general damages that a plaintiff can recover. The pain and suffering. Essentially. The pain and suffering. And, and this covers medical malpractice. And what medical malpractice is is essentially uh, a plaintiff who has been injured basically blaming a doctor or a medical provider for the reason he is injured. Saying that the doctor fell below the standard of care in his treatment of the patient or her treatment of the patient. And um, this already is a very difficult area of law. uh, Primarily because what doctors do is difficult and what doctors do is complicated. And so what a plaintiff needs to do is uh, show up to court and explain to a judge or a jury uh, exactly why what the doctor did was wrong. Um, Specifically in medical malpractice and specifically in healthcare, things go wrong all the time. And it's only if
0: they go wrong because of someone's carelessness, negligence, that, that there would be
3: liability. Exactly, so oftentimes things go wrong in an emergency room or in an operating room that is outside the control of a doctor's care, or at least sometimes even within inside the control of a doctor's care, but is not necessarily uh, considered negligent. It doesn't rise to the level of negligence. So going back to MICRA very quickly, uh, under MICRA, that category that we talked about earlier, the pain and suffering, the emotional distress from a broken leg, that amount is capped. And that amount is capped at $250,000. Meaning, capped
0: meaning no matter how much it is or how much the jury thinks it is, it has to be reduced to
3: $250,000. That's exactly right under California law. Typically, Dean
2: Smith, this is Judge Medell again, um, you would present your case to a jury. Uh, for example, um, a movie actress who uh, went in to the doctor to have a wart removed from her uh, chin when goes to the plastic surgeon. The plastic surgeon uses an electrocautery device, but it gets too close to the oxygen container, and her face catches on fire. And here a young movie actress, uh, whose whole life was predicated on her beauty, is now walking around with a burned face. That would be tried before the jury. We would put on evidence as to whether or not the doctor fell below the standard of care, whether the doctor's breach caused damages. But when it came to the damages portion, the lawyers would be allowed to argue liberally to the jury that this is worth the pain and suffering and disfigurement and embarrassment is worth millions and millions of dollars. Look. At the end of that, if they did award a millions millions of dollars, the defense lawyer would then make a motion to the court to say, your honor, that's capped to 250. And the trial judge would then reduce the amount to $250,000. So
0: let me pull apart two parts of that. Number one, you were talking about the pain and suffering. Yes. M- massive pain, right. the, the kind of injury that people spend years. But right. there's also the lost income that well, she had as an actress. That would right. not be capped. The lost
2: make- income is not capped. You, she could still, uh, for all of the, the great movies that she'd make a gazillion dollars for, that she and that she cannot do that anymore, she lost that opportunity she could still be paid the millions and millions of dollars for those. And what John
0: million. was saying, if she had exactly the same injuries as a result of a car accident, say, it would not be capped.
3: That's exactly right. And the other, item of cata- the other item of damages or category of damages that is still recoverable and not capped is the item of damages for future medical expenses. And in medical malpractice, that becomes a very important part of a plaintiff's case because they may need to receive care in the future. If, for example, there's a significant brain injury due to an oxygen deprivation and the person now requires skilled nursing care, then the plaintiff can still recover for those things. But for this category of damages that is oftentimes controversial in, um, in modern society and among uh, Main Street, if you will, um, that category is capped. Now, uh, I particularly practice in the area of plaintiff's personal injury work. Um, I don't do an incredible amount of medical malpractice myself, but I do do some. And uh, when this law was passed in 1977, a plaintiff and uh, a plaintiff's attorney on behalf of the plaintiff could recover $250,000 on behalf of their client. And even today, that's a lot of money. But in 1977, that was comparably worth so much more. And it hasn't been changed since 1977 no one might imagine in 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 a plaintiff's position like myself that the case could be made for let's say a three percent inflation each year on that amount three uh, percent of 250 is about you know eight thousand or nine thousand dollars something around there. And that might have increased since 1977, but that's not the case.
0: And so the, one of the reasons that I've heard people saying, well, you're gonna hear about this is because there's some effort in California to increase the cap, maybe change other parts of the, of the micro law. And I should say, this is a matter of state law. So other states have different rules, although the $250,000 cap is is present in a number of states. It, the way it's applied applies is, is very different from place to place. And
3: conversely, I think there is an important Acknowledgement among all attorneys plaintiffs or defense counsel that the cost of health care and the way that doctors practice is important and we don't want doctors practicing afraid we want them practicing to save lives and we want them practicing to do what they need to do for their clients health and so the argument in favor of keeping the cap even though it might be considered generally regressive because of the amount of inflation going up, uh, is that we are providing doctors a little bit more protection because of what they do, and that's a policy reason. I just want to add to that, and this
2: really is something that goes back to the beginning of our discussion. Uh, the whole reason for MICRA was the perceived high cost of medical malpractice insurance. The idea was that the high cost of malpractice insurance was driving doctors away from California by means of them moving to other states to avoid uh, the high cost. Uh, Number two, not practicing, uh, um, uh, essentially quitting the practice of medicine. And number three, practicing without insurance, which in a bona fide case of medical malpractice would essentially leave uh, a truly injured patient uh, stranded without any economic relief. So, John, what you said uh, I think is important to understand. Uh, The legislature's idea was let's scare those plaintiff's lawyers away from filing all these lawsuits so that we can basically keep the cost of uh, malpractice insurance down, keep our good doctors practicing, and not, uh, uh, not be beleaguered by a lot of frivolous cases that come in.
3: Well, and that's true, and I've been involved in several malpractice cases from the plaintiff's side, medical malpractice cases from the plaintiff's side, and there is certainly a, a level of attention that you provide to a plaintiff's case pre litigation um, that requires an enormous amount of medical specificity because you want to make sure very clearly that you are going to have a strong liability case. Um, and in fact, and, and the reason for that is you, as, an, as a human being and as a patient yourself, you want to make sure you're doing the right thing and that you are um, not trying to essentially build a case where there is none uh, against a doctor because doctors are important in our society. And in fact, uh, before the, uh, the session started here, Judge Medell reminded us that MICRA stand is an acronym, and it stands for the Medical Insurance Crisis Reform Act. So, you know, we've heard tort reform in, in recent political times, but this has been going on for quite some time. I had a speech that I've always wanted to give uh, that was really meant
2: to help plaintiff's lawyers uh, about the uh, nine reasons why these cases are so difficult. Um, I'm now a judge, and I'll give you that speech in private, Mr. Fisk.
0: (laughs) 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 Well, a couple of of thoughts. I mean, first of all, Mm. there there are not massive numbers of malpractice, uh, medical malpractice claims. The studies that have been done, as I read them, suggest that perhaps between... Five and fifteen percent of instances of malpractice give rise to any kind of claim at all. Very small proportion of those go to trial, and those uh, medical malpractice cases that go to trial, the defendants win about two thirds of them. So uh, it is—it is not statistically. It, it's. Um, to some degree i think more emotional than real and in, in in the present in some of the present circumstances well this is another thing that we'll keep an eye on because if it does come before the legislature we will talk about it uh, again judge medell it was a special day for you what happened today
2: about eight months ago i was asked to uh, cover the civil department in south bay upon the retirement of this legendary judge uh, judge cannon we have one civil department in the South Bay region, which covers National City, Coronado, Imperial Beach, all the South Bay cities in San Diego. And um, today, because of the massive state budget crisis and the uh, diminution, diminution of the uh, court's budget by almost a third, uh, they closed my department. And they basically, uh, we basically had to tell the community of South Bay, you no longer have a place uh, for the resolution of your civil cases. All of your cases, 3,000, I might add, will be sent downtown to the 10 remaining IC judges. Uh, that reduced from 14 to 10 because of the same crisis. What's IC?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, independent calendaring. And that's our system of handling uh, civil cases. So uh, it was with sadness that I looked at all the lawyers today and a few litigants in the uh, my department to say the budget crisis has caused... Uh, This community did not have a place to resolve your civil cases. The
0: the, the issue of funding for courts is something the American Bar Association and a number of other uh, groups, and both uh, of attorneys and of of good government generally, have been real concerned about during the past year and a half or or so. There are stories of courts having all sorts of budget crises, and that's really what you're talking about. It's not limited to San Diego, not limited to California. It's a a national issue. problem. Why should people worry about this and and furthermore where where does the money come from to run courts? I thought we paid fees that covered courts.
2: Well, um, fees are part of it. We have uh, what we call assessments. If you don't pay a fine, for example you'll be surprised to go into court when you get a bench warrant to find that your fine has been increased substantially and and you have to pay a special assessment for that. That constitutes, I believe, about um, 3 to 5 percent of the court's budget The main money, though, comes from the state treasury through the AOC, which is the um, administrative office of the courts, and is transferred by wire to each court in the state uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, That amount um, used to be um, $190, $190 million per year. For the past five to seven years, we have noted that there is a budget crisis, and we have handled that budget crisis by not uh, by a hiring freeze, essentially. If people retired, got disabled, or left to another job, of we, judges or everyone. Other person, well, judges. the judges uh, judges are refilled; their positions are refilled.
0: But staff, bailiffs, sheriffs, uh, 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 court officers, rather.
2: Yeah, bailiffs have their own system, but all the other uh, all the other uh, related court uh, uh, officers and officials, administrators. Uh, if, if someone left, we wouldn't rehire. And that was our way of uh, handling it this year. They cut $35 million from our existing budget and said, deal with it. We were able to say, Oh my God, we can't deal with this this year. Uh, this year. We might be able to deal with it because we've saved $22 million. By the way, San Francisco said we've saved $0 and the impact was immediate. The, uh, Uh, presiding judge there immediately fired commissioners, closed courtrooms, told all the civil lawyers, I'm sorry your cases, we're not sure when your cases will ever go to trial. They had saved no money.
3: And when you say we, you're talking about the San Diego Superior Court San Diego
2: Superior Court had saved $22 million, called reserves. Which includes
3: Vista Courthouse, El Cajon Courthouse, San Diego Downtown Courthouse, Traffic Courthouse, Probate and Family. family. So this would be a
0: temporary Band-Aid.
3: Our
2: $22 million is a temporary Band-Aid. Ironically the eyebrows were raised by those in power in the state by saying you did what you saved 22 million dollars who told you to do that you're supposed to be sending that spending that money and waved their finger at us and said don't do that again we're going to allow you to offset uh, the 35 million uh, dollar reduction by your 22 million this year so your total loss will be 11 million but next year we're only going to allow you to save one percent one to two million dollars in reserves and if you don't spend all your money...
0: We'll take it away from you. Which is a good way to ensure you don't we'll, save
2: it. Exactly, which uh, we thought was... Uh, I, I won't comment on it too directly, except to say there are arguments that uh, about prudence <laughs> in
0: terms of... Well, why, why should uh, people care about this? I mean, so they don't get as many calls to jury service? I mean, why should people care?
2: I'm gonna step back, just a step uh, back, just to uh, help you understand this. Um, we have uh, cut services incredibly. Um, we have uh, closed the civil uh, departments in El Cajon, in Vista, not all of them, but some of them, the only one in South Bay. We have knocked off four civil departments, for example, in the downtown area. That means that 10 judges will not only have their own caseloads, but the caseloads of their four departed independent calendaring judges, plus the 3,000 cases that I was handling in South Bay, and they will have to try to incorporate those cases into what we call the fast track system, which is a revolutionary system started in San Diego to complete a case from start to finish in one year, whereas other jurisdictions across the country go three to five years for resolution. How we're gonna do that with that many cases with our clerical staff reduced by 258 persons that that are going to lose their jobs, clerical administrators, Court reporters uh, is really a mystery. We're going to be closing down our business office on Fridays. We're closing our, our civil business office in uh, in South Bay to free up 20 clerical positions to allow those positions to be let go. Once we find the bodies to fit to fit those positions, people will be standing in lines. People will have civil cases that will now be on a five or three year tract instead of a one year tract. Efficient one year tract. It's going to take a public crisis for us to get some kind of relief, I it, believe.
0: There's an old cliche that justice delayed is justice denied. And to some degree, the, the insecurity, the inability to get on with your life that occurs uh, when you have a case pending forever is is significant. And that's one of the ways the lines are another uh, problem. Um, so you, you mentioned civil Three times in yes. that. So what's happening with criminal cases?
2: Criminal cases uh, must go on. Because? Because there are uh, constitutional and statutory time frames that speedy, we must abide by. Speedy trial Speedy trial requirements. Uh, right. Time frames for motions, et cetera. It must go on. So at all costs, we're going to basically have to abide by those time frames in our criminal cases. So if that means over time that uh, we're focusing all our attention on criminal cases everything else is going to go by the wayside.
3: And Dean Smith, uh, when we talked earlier about personal injury, medical malpractice, uh, business disputes, business litigation, all sorts of c- civil encompasses so much, uh, those, those plaintiffs and defendants are going to be waiting in line, and they're going to be, frankly, confused. I've already had experience with my cases. We've got a caseload of about 45 cases right now, and about one-third of our cases have been reassigned away from certain judges to other judges. So imagine calling up your client and saying, remember that judge that we had that you, know, you came in and you saw uh, two weeks ago? That judge is going to be a different judge now. And, and the client says, well, what did, what did we do wrong? Well, we didn't do anything wrong. It's just a matter of budget. And I won't name the judge, but she's a very good judge. And when we were trying to sort out with co-counsel and defense counsel on a particular case where our case would go, and, uh, you know, there was a little bit of a heartache about the fact that there isn't enough staff and judges and courtrooms to hear cases. Uh, her reply was, call your local state legislator. And that's, that's the, the courts that, and the judges are just as frustrated as anybody else. That's
0: the real—really, I think what you've both said is there are some fees, but the, the real solution has to come from public funds, primarily the state legislature, because you can't be doing bank sales uh, or fundraisers as a court. Yes, and I will say that an enormous uh, amount of pressure uh, was attempted
2: to be borne on our state legislature, on our governor, by very high-powered legal organizations and very high-powered attorneys and judges. And uh, up to this point, um, basically, uh, as, as we talked about a little before the program began, um, our court system was thought to be such a low priority in the scheme of the larger overall budget, state budget, that... Um, those pleas have gone uh, unanswered.
0: Well, this has not been the most optimistic uh, <laughs> portion of the prog- program. But catch maybe me at the McDonald's. The, the, so yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> <You> know, <that's, laughs> but maybe as the, uh, as the economy recovers, as the state's economy recovers and uh, tax receipts increase, uh, maybe this will uh, be corrected. But it's a serious problem, and the longer it goes, the more serious I, I think it will become. So, with that, we want to thank you very much. Thanks to John Fisk. Uh, Judge Kenneth Bedell and Wendy Patrick, thank you all for being on Law Review. As always, they are speaking as individual educators, not as representatives uh, of their offices. Thanks also to our producers, Hank Crook, Grace Garner, and Ben Pesner. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or by visiting lawreview.podbean.com. If you have a topic you would like us to consider on Law Review or have any comments, we would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Steve Smith, and the Law Review stands adjourned.